fans and welcome to the leading edge where we talk with umpires about umpiring and look to cover topics on both sides of the plate joining us on this episode is a man that has been to the 2008 olympics has done multiple international events and is really a canadian umpire icon and legend ron suchuk on this episode we talk about his experiences at the 2008 olympics how he teaches english to non-english speaking umpires and how he hopes to get 50 cents back he lent years ago so sit back relax get ready it's coming Hello, baseball and umpire fans, and welcome back to another episode of The Leading Edge, where we talk with umpires about umpiring and look to cover topics on both sides of the plate. Well, we got another special episode here. We're going to finish the second half of the interview with a Canadian icon, a man that's been to the Olympics. He's done nine international events. He has stories to tell and jokes to drop, Mr. Ron Suchuk. Now, before we begin, we always like to update the listener on the previous episode and share with them either one, what people have missed, or two, what we were talking about. So back on that first half of the episode, here are some of the things you might be missing, or here are some of the things that you've enjoyed. That resulted in an injection. So when I was leaving, I yelled at, I yelled out in the field. I said, I could out-umpire any one of you guys. He took a glove, took a ball, said to the third baseman, here. You and I are going to go practice. (laughs) Hal was an absolute professional. And I said, I had Chinese and the fortune cookie said today would be a day of honesty and integrity. So it's going to have to be that. And guess what? You you want a lefty or the righty? And he says, ah, darn it. I'll take the lefty. (laughs) And umpires, they don't realize how much of a step up that senior championship is. So we're, we're going back and forth and I have to terminate his his participation in the game. Yeah, yeah that, that might have been a sign that, yeah. that maybe this this was an experiment gone bad. When you're a full-time guy, the minute that you walk out, you walk out on the field, there's that instant respect. Some of my memorable ones, I always, I always like going out east. The pre-tournament dinner was absolutely unbelievable. We took a, a river cruise uh, down the Miramichi River. And no, he couldn't hit either, as a matter of fact. <laughs> I was fortunate enough to to work behind the catcher. Well, Ron, when you say that you got to work behind the catcher in that game, I don't think that's the only game you have quite the illustrious career, and it's an honor and a privilege to share the remainder of this interview with all our listeners here on The Leading Edge. Now, quickly, before we get into this episode or this half of the interview, just going to plug the social media, okay? Go to Facebook, Leading Edge Umpire Stories. Like us, search for us, share us, send us your address, We'll send you a free gift, okay? It's simple as that. So Leading Edge Umpire Stories on the Facebook, that's where we're at, and that's where we're going to be. Now, let's get to the real reason why you're here, okay? Leading Edge Umpire Stories and Entertainment is proud to continue the second half of the interview with the Western Major Baseball League's second all-star team, Baseball Manitoba Hall of Famer, and a scratch golfer, Ron Suchuk. So let's tune in where we left off, just as we were getting into Ron's international experience.
Okay, welcome back everybody to another episode of The Leading Edge. We're going to get right into this now. Ron, in the last episode, you mentioned that you've worked the World Youth Games back in 1984. Now, Ron, let's expand on that. Can you share with us some of your other international experience? I worked in Windsor, as I said, in, in 87, in 1987. And then I worked in 2000, sorry, 1991 in Brandon, Manitoba. And then I went to Monterey, Mexico in 1992, and then back to Brandon in 1994. For, those were the five world juniors that I did. Those were great learning experiences. I'll tell you, like Monterey, Mexico, you talk about a grind. It was 40 degrees every day, and I think I did. I got on the train. I did my first game at third base. I did my next game at first base, and then I wound up uh, doing the plate, and I worked plate first, plate first for the rest of the tournament. And that was the only place I worked. And it was, uh, the baseball there was, was really good. They had, uh, the Americans had a, a kid that uh, we were, I happened to fly on the same flight back from them. And they had a kid catching by the name of A.J. Hinch. Oh, okay. <laughs> and A.J. Hinch, actually. And, and um, both A.J. Hinch and Aaron Boone were at the 91 World Championships in Brandon. And then I had A.J. was one of the three returning players the next year in Monterey, Mexico. He was a great, just a class act as a kid. You know, he was an 18-year-old kid and just a really, really class act. And uh, another kid they had is, uh, I have to preface the story, we were sitting in the lounge and I happened to be on the same flight as the Americans. They were in, uh, we were sitting in the lounge and departure lounge ready to go. And this one kid, uh, he didn't have, have any money so I lent them 50 cents for a, a juice you think when this kid signed his 250 million 10-year contract <laughs> that Alex Rodriguez would have paid me back so Alex Rodriguez still owes me 50 cents now Ron we're gonna throw this up on the internet so you never know what could happen and you might get your money back just curious considering all this time are you gonna charge any interest on that I hope there's a, at least two percent on that two percent <laughs> you mentioned the name AJ Hinch was he carrying around a garbage can back then no, but I'll tell you, it was. Uh, I was doing a, a game between the United States and uh, and Mexico, and they had twenty five thousand people. And in Latin America, they put rocks in cans, like Coke cans, yep. and, those, and they're shaking these things. Pitch comes right down the middle, like the first pitch of the game. And I and I, you know, pretty loud at that time. I bang it for a strike, and Hintz turns around. And he says, "Ron, that was right down the middle." And I go, well, "I did." I called it a strike. He goes, well, "I didn't hear you." you know? Oh wow! And they were pretty good. The Americans lost that. Uh, they lost to the Cubans, and the Cubans had a kid by the name of Levon Hernandez who went on to pitch with uh, with San Francisco and a pretty good major league career. Must be such an honor to look back years later and look at these championships and see the names and where these players have gone to go. I was there. I got the chance to umpire these guys before they were big. Yeah, it's amazing when you look at when you go to those tournaments and and guys that, that have gone to them. You'll you'll kind of you know for some reason you might be looking at a program. You go, oh, this kid's in the majors. This kid's in the majors. This kid from Panama is in the majors. This kid in from Japan is playing in their majors leagues. And yeah, it's it's amazing the the players that you run into and and you see them as you know as well, next year Alex Rodriguez was a one, number one pick with Seattle. They were just young kids just developing and, and playing the game. And when you're on the field looking at a guy like Alex Rodriguez and he goes number one next year, can you see it? Oh, absolutely. Uh, in fact, my first one, and going back to Kindersley, is the Cubans had a kid. There was, I, was, I was umpiring at second base. The ball got hit right at me, and I was in, in position three, and the, the ball got hit 
right between, almost right between my legs, I moved. The Cuban shortstop picked it up and threw the kid out by from five or six steps. And the guy's name was Omar Linares. And Linares became one of the great names in Cuban baseball. And him and Rodriguez kind of had the same paths. They they came up as, as shortstops. And then when Rodriguez, Alex Rodriguez went to the Yankees, uh, because they had Jeter, they moved him to third base. And the Cubans, because they had Hermain Mesa, the greatest yeah. shortstop in, in Cuban baseball history, they moved uh, Linares, Omar Linares, to third base. So, yeah, they were kind of interested in, you know, kind of interesting. You see those guys at, at that age and away they go. And I remember sudden Jack McDowell won a yes. Cy Young yes. with uh, with uh, the White Sox. He was pitching with uh, with uh, the U.S. team in Kindersley. Truly is amazing looking back on it, some of the names you might see on some of those rosters at some of these championships. Now let's go back to Kindersley and start there. Any big names on that roster from Canada at the time? Well, they had a guy that maybe got inducted into the Hall of Fame by the name of Larry Walker. It was funny, and I'll I'll I'll, I'll jump ahead and, and I'll talk a little bit about. I was at the Pan Am Games in 2015, and we're getting ready to play. And Larry Walker and we never used to umpire Canadian games or your country's games, but because we had so many Canadians, I was working first base in the Columbia Canada game, and. Larry Walker comes out to first base and he goes, goes Ron, I'm Larry Walker. Because, I mean, he does, he's a, he's a professional, he knows. So he comes out and he goes, I go, Larry, I said, I worked you in 1984 at the <laughs> World Juniors in Kindersley. And he goes, the look on his face was priceless. And the American that was doing the plate says, he talked about that for three innings. <laughs> he can come by and he go, I can't believe that he knows. He remembers Kindersley Saskatchewan. He says, and he was telling Walker got telling the, the American about Kindersley Saskatchewan. <laughs> it was hot and they, we had to hail about four times. And oh yeah, it was. So that was uh, that was one of the guys that was was in '84 at the at the Worlds in Kindersley. So is it fair to say that Larry Walker holds Kindersley close to his heart? Well, at least he knows where it is, which, <laughs> right. is, which, is, which is probably uh, only about maybe 2% of, or, or 1% of all major leaguers know where Saskatchewan <laughs> is, let alone Kindersley. That's fair. Kindersley, a big baseball Canada town at one time, hosted the 2010 Canada Cup. And also they still owe tribute to the 1984 World Youth Games. They have a big sign when you come into town that says they were the host of the 1984 World Youth Games. It's also really interesting, the small towns and the impact they have on some of these players as they move up. You got to give ode to those small towns that really do invest in these championships and put their heart, soul, and money on the line to make them successful. You always have to appreciate those those kinds of places that host, whether it be the Fort McMurray's, uh, the Brandon's, the, the Miramichi's, the Fredericton's, all these places that, that host numerous championships. And, you and Regina, you just have to tip your hat to those those kinds of places. They make baseball so much better in our country. I agree with you 100%, Ron. We wouldn't be able to do what we do on the field if it wasn't for the fantastic volunteers that do what they do off the field. Okay, now that you shared your World Junior experience, fill us in with some of your senior experience around the world. The first one I did was in 2001. I did the World Cup in Taiwan, and it was... Uh, it was a it was a really good tournament. We had uh, sixteen teams, and uh, and I was down in Kaohsiung, which is in the uh, southern part of the of the country, and we had a lot of fun down there. I worked I worked a lot with Nelson Diaz, who was a Cuban, and I wound up working I think seven World Championships with Nelson, and uh, 
he was a lot of fun to work with. A very serious guy, but yet one of the best umpires I've ever worked with. He was a he was a god. Like uh, you talk about Cesar Valdez, uh, people have talked about on this show. Nelson Diaz, when when Fidel Castro used to go to Latino Americana Stadium in uh, in Havana, he'd come and out and visit with Nelson and with Cesar. Wow, uh, they were they were on a first name basis with with Fidel Castro. Interesting. It's really interesting. Some of the politics in baseball. It is, but. It was a great tournament. The, the, this first, it was my first senior, but it was. I have to tell this story. I was, I was working a game with three Taiwanese umpires, and uh, we were two hours. We were working about two hours out of Kaohsiung, and um, they were kind of nervous because they had. They, we had the big bad Americans, but it was, it was the big bad Americans against France, and oh, France, okay. France, France, France wasn't quite that good, and it was the Americans were five and zero, oh, and France was, of course the other way 0-5. So they were all worried about how to handle the Americans. So finally I said to them, I, I, I couldn't resist. We had a college kids as interpreters and it took me about half an hour to explain how to handle when they argued. Because I guess they, they, a couple of them had a problem with the Americans and balls and strikes and this. And I said to them, I said, the first time one of them turns around and looks at you and questions a strike, you just say to them, swing the bat, you big baby. <laughs> so anyway we're doing we're in the we're in the fourth inning the score is 12 nothing for for the americans and the regular center the backup center fielder he tweaks a hamstring so now they put in their regular guy first pitch comes in of the next inning and it's borderline outside and the guy and he and he turns around and he says something to the umpire and all of a sudden, the American is standing there. He's got his hands going like, "What happened there?" So now he he goes out, and I'm in I'm in working second base. He comes by me. He says, "Ron." He says, "That umpire, he's crazy." I said, "What, what do you mean?" He says, "He said I asked him on the first pitch, is that as far out as you're going?'" And he told me to swing the bat, you big baby. And I says to him, "I says, you know what?" I says, don't mess with that guy. I says, he is crazy. He just got off a five-year suspension for kicking a player right in the rear end after he questioned a strike three. I said, so don't mess with us. And I was, I couldn't resist. I was, I was double over laughing and this guy's running out to the outfield and, and then there was no problem. Any. They never even looked back after that. So that was my, uh, one great story about that tournament. And then, but then we went up to uh, the super round. We went up to Taipei and did that. And I worked with uh, I worked with with Caesar up there and Dan Weichel and and uh, Joe Burleson from uh, the United States. They call him Omaha Joe. I think he's gone to like six or eight World College World Series. And yes. it was uh, it was a it was a great tournament. The Cubans were still dominant at that time. They beat the Americans in the in the final, and it was it was a lot of fun. So. Ron, we've talked about this on the show before. Most of us know how to get to the international pathway through Canada and the T12 tournament, but how do Americans advance up through and get into an international event? They don't hold the international program in, in very high esteem. So traditionally what it is is the supervisor, who was Dick Runchy at that time, he was good friends with Joe and knew the, and he would go and recruit 
the top their top level college umpires to go to these tournaments and now okay. what it is is uh when they have these tournaments whether it's premier 12 or whatever it's it's the professional guys that go the triple a guys that go and uh, and they go to uh, the tournaments now but um at those tournaments though they still do they still do take some uh, some college guys i know uh, mike winners who was a not the major league mike winners but mike winners was with trevor grieve in taiwan he's a high level uh, college umpire ex triple a guy because we were in the we were at the olympic qualifier together in uh, in havana in 06 well what a great segue because that was the next question tell us about the olympic qualifier in 06 in cuba to preface this uh rocky nichols the assistant supervisor and don gilbert said to me do you want to go to the world baseball classic which would have been the first one or do you want to go to the olympic qualifier and i says you know what i don't know anything about this world baseball classic I have a dream. I want to. My goal is to go to the Olympics. One of my best ways to go is to go in 2006. I went to Havana. Greatest baseball experience I ever had. I did six Cuban games on. They were on national TV. I was on TV more that that in those ten or twelve days than Fidel Castro, <laughs> and uh, it was it was absolutely unbelievable experience. Hotter than the hobs of hell. Pardon my French, but yeah. it was terribly hot. I did one game on the plate. It was 49 degrees with the Humidex, but uh, yeah, so uh, the tournament was going pretty well. In fact, it was going really well until the final game, and the final game had, it was Cuba against the United States, but both of them had qualified already for the 08 Beijing Olympics, but it was for seeding. Well, it turns out the Americans are just kicking them. Like, they're beating them like 8-1, to and all of a sudden, I'm doing second base, and the Cuban catcher, Ariel Pastano, he's going to the home plate umpire, and he blah, 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 blah. He accused me of getting, giving hit signals to the American hitters. <laughs> wow. Okay. It was, the, it was the most bizarre thing, and I'm going, this is nuts, you know. So now it's pretty hard for a guy like me to hide in a place like Cuba. So the next day was our – was this the last game was on a Sunday. Monday we're off. Tuesday – uh, we're flying out, but Monday, I want to get some swag and get some souvenirs from Cuba. I go to the market with the American umpire, and who are the first people that we run into? The American team. <laughs> I go, I'm out of here. I am not. I don't want to be seen anywhere near these guys. Right. We're going. And there's this one guy with the only digital camera in all of Cuba. He's running around <laughs> trying to get my picture. Like He's like, oh, I'm a tour Canada. And he's like hiding in, going in and out of these booths. Finally, I got so sick of this. I says, hold it. I says, come here. I put my arm around him. I said, the Mike Winters, the American umpire, says, here, take a picture of this guy. And I so I put my arm around him. I thought I bought the guy Christmas. It was unbelievable. <laughs> so, and, uh, so that was my – so needless to say, and, and we'll go ahead with this, is how many games – how many Cuban games did I do at the Olympics in, uh, in Beijing – Zero. <laughs> I don't. I don't think a Canadian. A Canadian worked. Uh, Andrew Higgins said when he went in wherever two thousand and nine to the worlds, he didn't get any Cuban games either. <laughs> so, oh wow! So it followed you for a few years. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Well, it followed me right through the the, the Beijing Olympics. Yeah. So yeah. Well, fair enough. But I think it's time that we talk about them. You said your goal was to always work the Olympics. What was it like to get the call to go to the Olympics in, say, 2007, early 2008? Yeah, it was in 2007. They made the decision at the Baseball Canada meetings, I believe, in November. I wasn't there, but Larry Nichols represented uh, 
Manitoba, Larry was our supervisor of umpires, and he phoned me up and he says, well, how do you like, you like Chinese food? And I says, why? He says, you're going to the Olympics. And so that was it. And, and what, was, what was also great about this is um, one of my best friends in the world is, is Brian Hodson. And Brian Hodson, had, him and I had umpired numerous championships together. And uh, he was the other Canadian. We were fortunate enough to get two assignments. And wow, that was, uh, that was great. And, you know, and traveling with him, and, and it, was, it was just fantastic. That was the, the good part of, of, of the Olympics. Working with Brian, or at least traveling with Brian, must have made you feel a little bit at home and kept the comfort level down, did it? It was great. We flew on a flight from Winnipeg to Vancouver. And the funny thing was, is they had the parents of the U.S. women's softball team on the same flight. And the the flight going there wasn't all that crowded. So they were walking around. Of course, they had this swagger. They were they were going to win the Olympics and blah, blah, blah. They were this and that. And so we get to we get to Beijing and they tell us to put on our credentials if we had them. So we were walking off the plane. There was a table tennis official from Winnipeg. And Brian and I, they fast track us through a line and a special line. And all these American parents, are they're all waiting and waiting and waiting in a different line. We get our luggage and we're already on, on transportation out there. And they're still in line waiting and waiting and waiting. When, when the tournament was over... The, these same parents, they, uh, they of course, they lost the gold medal game to yes. Japan. Yes. They were a little bit more humble. So now we're getting, we're, we're loading our luggage onto the, we're going in, getting in line. We again are in a special line. They zip us through, boom, boom, boom. We're out, we're out of there in about two minutes. And these parents were in line for about three hours. Oh. I could say it couldn't happen to nicer people, but I won't. <laughs> Well, that 2008 Olympics for the American softball team was a disappointment for them. Like you said, they thought they were going to win it. They were they had a stacked team. They had one of the best softball pitchers ever with Jenny Finch. I guess it was just a disappointment. Yes, it was. And I think the, the Japanese played the game of their lives and the Americans didn't perform on that day. But it was a, it was a great Olympics. Um, I'm going to cut you off, Ron. Was the flight, was it a commercial or a chartered flight? No, it was commercial. We flew, uh, like I said, from Winnipeg to Vancouver and Vancouver Air Canada, and it was a, it was a commercial flight. Even the when we came back, the uh, there was a, there was many Canadian athletes uh, on the flight, and it was it was it was pretty much full on or it was full on the way back. So thirteen hours on a full on a full plane isn't a whole lot of fun. But I think Brian Brian and I played the best of one hundred and twenty in cribbage, and I beat him. <laughs> I think I beat him sixty to. Sixty to fifty-two, something like that. Oh, so nice. we played like one hundred and twenty crib, cribbage games, and and it was it was a it was a good trip. So you're trying to say that you and Brian can count higher than a three-two count? Is that what you're saying? Fifteen-two and a pair's four. <laughs> it's like a, like a good Wimble score, fifteen-two. Now, Ron, you're there on the other side of the world. Did you find it a culture shock? How did you adjust? Because I'm sure every athlete and official wants <laughs> to get over there and get as comfortable as they can, so that they can perform at the highest level that they're able to. You know the it was it was China's coming out party, and they made sure that they westernized it as much as they could. So when we got there, we stayed. We each had our own hotel room. They had English speaking, or they had uh, uh, services translators, all those types of things. They really tried. They they instituted a lot of laws, like you couldn't spit if you you know. They they tried to tell their citizens to really put their best foot forward. And if they had food, they, they tried to make it as Western as, 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 as possible. So the restaurant or the hotel we stayed at was, you could get 
clubhouses you could get whatever you wanted in terms of western food if you wanted authentic chinese food which we yes. which we had restaurants in the area that we went to but uh, they they tried to really do a a, a bang up job of, of pleasing the foreigners it was uh, it was very well done and you always hear about the politics and all those kinds of things and they interviewed me in a local paper and i says politics is, the, is up to them i'm there to umpire baseball and Right. And that's and that's what what we went and they uh, the fields were absolutely fantastic. They brought in Murray uh, Cook, who does MLB special events, and he's the guy that does all these tournaments. And he was the head grounds creek keeper. And uh, yeah, it was it was first class in terms of the facilities and and the way they ran the tournament. It was we did not go to the opening ceremonies. And Rob Allen alluded to this, and he said. Yeah, he didn't go until the Pan Am Games, but we did go to the closing ceremonies, and okay. it was unbelievable. It was the most spectacular show that I that I think I've ever been. Ninety thousand people, and it was about five hours, and just a, it seemed like it went by like in, in right. a heartbeat. Now let's talk quickly about the games themselves. Team Canada had some big names on that team. They had Michael Saunders, Brett Laurie, Stubby Clap. They also had a guy by the name of Raul Cormier who making his second Olympic opportunity experience when he was back there in 1988 with Jim Cressman. And a lot of big Canadian names and major league names and Canadian connections that we've seen and grown up with over the years. I'm going to assume no, but did you work any Canadian games? Oh, no, absolutely not. No. What I did work was, uh, I, I believe I worked seven American games. Their manager was uh, was Davey Johnson, and Davey was in Cuba uh, the same time that I was there. And, okay. Um, Bob Watson was their GM, and Bob Watson was an ex-major leaguer, and he was also in, in Havana. So it was the same management team. And it was funny because the first game I'm doing, I'm doing the United States and Taiwan, and the third baseman comes out to me and he says, he says, hey, Ron, you know what? If you ever work second base, we got to work out a, se a series of signs. Because <laughs> I guess Davey Johnson yeah, had told yeah. him what had happened in, in Havana two years before. So uh, that was that was pretty funny, and so then the, the second game that I did was uh, there's a, there's this kid pitching by the name of Steven Strasburg who might have been last year's MVP, and he was still a senior in college, and uh, he was the only non-professional. Um, if you go on YouTube, uh, it shows him pitching some games. This is one of our famous post-show edits. Ron, thanks for the heads up. We've done all the work for the listener. We've gone to YouTube and we've found those videos, and we have posted links in our show description. Now, the link involving Steven Strasburg also has Ron Suchuk in it behind the plate. You'll see it. It's very, very brief, but he's there. But the other cool thing is that Ron is in this video with another famous major leaguer or ex-major leaguer, and in my opinion, one of the best hitters ever in baseball, Tony Gwynn. Now, how cool is that? Ron Suchuk, Steve Strasburg, and Tony Gwynn all in the same video. Not to mention Bob Black also makes a quick appearance. The other video link that's posted is also a pretty cool one. It's with Ron on the plate between Japan and Korea in an Olympic preliminary game. Now, as I mentioned, Ron is working the dish. So take a look, take a click, enjoy it. Now back to the show. I remember the first, he throws a pitch, the first pitch, and they hadn't had the radar gun on yet. So he throws the first pitch and the guy fouls it off. And the next pitch right down the middle. And I look up at the radar gun and it's 98. And oh. I'm going... Today will be a day of paying attention. <laughs> and, <laughs> and the strange thing was, in that game, the guy from the Netherlands was throwing 94. Oh, wow. But the U.S. beat them 7 nothing. But we had a bunch of rain, and Strasbourg 
pitched seven innings and struck out 11. He was really good. He was really on that day. But we had a rain situation, so we start up. We, we have to shut down. We start up. They had changed the rules, and usually in Baseball Canada events or in international events, you don't you finish a game when you don't start another one until that, that one's done. But for some reason, they had made a, a decision before the Olympics. If the game was stopped because of rain, then it finished. And they wanted to stop the game because we started at 11, and this was about – four or four thirty and and they the rain was going to stop but they didn't want to lose the field and they had china was playing uh, japan at seven o'clock okay so they a, a big game so they didn't want to lose the field so they called the game and it was funny because the netherlands they protested this okay so now i'm the plate guy so i've got a i've got a two hundred dollar they got to give two hundred dollars okay so i've got to put on my uniform because I'm just in a pair yeah. of gym shorts and we're waiting because we know the game's going to get called. I have to put on my uniform, go to home plate. This guy's got to give me $200 in the formal protest with the technical committee guy there. Right. Okay. So I take the $200 and I walk in. I give the I give it to the uh, the, the head of the technical committee. And Tom Volk from Canada was part of the, the technical committee too. And I give him this, this protest. I take the $200 and $50 bills and I start giving it to each one of my partners. <laughs> and they're not no, 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 that comes to us. And I go, well, what are you going to do with it? I said, you're going to do the same thing that, that we're going to do with it. No, 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 no. It goes into the fund. And I said to Volk the next day, I said, where'd you guys go for supper after? He kind of smiles, you know. But And then, yeah, so that was uh, that was one of the, that was my first plate game. And then I did another plate game between uh, Korea and Japan. And that's a, that's an interesting game. They hate each other, by the way, the Koreans and, and Japan. They, I couldn't they see not, that. They're, they're not the best of friends. Well, I'm just going to take this time, everyone. Ron mentioned that he was sitting in his gym shorts. So just take this time to picture Ron in his gym shorts one more time. <laughs> now, forgetting some of the geopolitical battles, can you tell us really how they hate each other on the ball field or what's different? Because we've heard in previous episodes that Asian baseball is different. So what's different or how did you handle it? Yeah, that game that I did, it was we were through six innings in an hour. They were throwing oh. strikes. And it was it was it was it was faster. They're starting to play. They're they're starting to do what the Americans are realizing that you know what? Let's let's speed the game up. And it still comes down. It doesn't matter what level it is, whether it's U twelve or or the major leagues. If you got the guy throwing the ball over the plate and the, and the ball's in play and it's getting caught and, and and somebody's you know throwing somebody out at first base, then uh, the game goes fast. And so. Uh, it um, the pace of play for for the Asian countries, I think, is is improving. So, of all your championships, Ron, is it fair to say that the Olympic Games is the highlight? No question. I walked off that field in Beijing. I took a handful of dirt. I rubbed it in my hands, and I went, "I'm done." I, you know, yep. it's a, you know, I'm done. Yeah, I know. I thought I'm done internationally, and and it was kind of actually, you know, there was a couple of tears came out of my eyes when I w got into the locker room. I can you know? see that. Because, yep. You know, you, 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 when you start umpiring, you don't think of this. I mean, if you, when I'm 20 years old, you think I ever would have thought, "Geez, I'm, I want to go to the Olympics." But as as you progress along the the path, and thing one thing falls into place and then another thing and then all of a sudden there you are and you kind of went wow this is this is unbelievable moment very unbelievable and congratulations once again even though we're 12 years later you're still at it so you weren't done no i wasn't and in 2015 i got a call to do the pan-american games uh, i 
I thought my international career was over, and uh, I got the, the opportunity to do the Pan American Games. It was a multi-sport event. Great guys. I worked with Carlos Ray, who I'd run... I'd worked previous internationals with and Alberto from Cuba who I'd worked with before and obviously I, I roomed with John Oko and Darren Scott was there and another great individual Mitch Ball and so we had uh, we had a lot of fun it was just a it was a good tournament pretty well run you know Rhonda alluded that she had transportation problems but uh, what we did was we used to just take shuttles and, and they encouraged us the shuttle drivers would come running when they seen us because they wanted us. They wanted us because they would be bored. Like they had so much transportation. It's just they didn't utilize it in the in the right way. We we had no no transportation problems, and it was a, it was a lot of fun. Now you mentioned that the Pan Am Games are a multi sport event, and you're also a multi sport official. Did you take the opportunity when you were at the Olympics or the Pan Am Games to take in other events? The Olympics, for the most part, were sold out. It was really, really difficult to get tickets for anything. So we didn't, I really didn't get an opportunity. I did see a lot of, a lot of Beijing though. Okay. I went, you know, obviously we went, we went, I went to the Great Wall on a day off and um, went to the Silk Market and went, you know, saw a lot of Beijing. I went to Tiananmen Square and those types of things. Toronto, I, I got a chance to, uh, we went to a Jays game because actually the Jays were playing then. But the other one was is I went to volleyball, and that's another sport that's dear, dear to my heart. And uh, I went and watched the guy from Winnipeg who I do university volleyball with. And he was there doing a game, so it was uh, it was good that way. That's interesting. So your tag as an official doesn't really let you go anywhere. And you're restricted to venues. No, no, it's not. It's uh, it's it's you have to pay. Like you okay. know, you have to pay. It was twenty five dollars or whatever to go watch volleyball or whatever. Okay. But yeah, it's it's not like like usually like at Canada Games in ninety seven. If you were an athlete, you could go to any event, but not right. not here, not in Toronto. And it was they were they were running this kind of as a test to see whether they would bid for the Olympics. And you never know, someday Toronto, the center of the universe, could host the Olympics. Now, I already leaked the news, kind of, but you are a multi-sport official. How many other sports or what sports do you officiate? I do hockey. I used to do junior hockey, but I still do senior hockey. And uh, I did my last AAA midget game this year. I said, I'm done. I said, I'm packing it in after this. Let the younger guys work. And I still do high school basketball. It's interesting when you talk about being a multi-sport official. The, the four sports that I do, two of them are very similar in that volleyball and baseball are similar in that Everything happens or 99% of the things happen right at the point where the ball is. You know, I mean, you might have obstruction or missed yes. bases and those types of things, but most action happens where it is. Same in volleyball. It's the person that's handling the ball, you know, you might have a net call. You might have a under-the-line call at center on the center line, but it happens. Hockey and basketball are similar in that you have responsibilities and you have areas where that you have to cover. So if you're right. if you're umpiring basketball, you're you're the lead official, you have this responsibility. If you're the trail official, you have this responsibility. Same as if you're refing hockey, the same the same thing. So those two sports, two sports volleyball and baseball are the same and hockey and uh, and basketball are, are very similar. Wow, I got to say Ron, I've never broken it down that way to think about a sport that action happens at the play of the ball and another area where action happens away and responsibilities really interesting to think about it also goes to show how much you think about officiating in the different aspects of the games but now reflecting on your officiating career overall how do you think each sport has helped you become a better official overall or a better umpire i think it's just awareness of 
the court, awareness of the field, awareness of partners. Um, you know, sometimes we have we have umpires that don't don't read off partners because, like in volleyball, you're always looking at your partner. You know, in in basketball, you're you're making eye contact, and those types of things are are those are skills. That, that transfer over to other sports. You know, game management is, is, is another thing, and game management is, is different in all those sports, but yeah. on the other hand, sometimes you can incorporate one into another. There's a lot of skills that, that are involved in, in all sports. Yeah, I agree. There's a lot of universal skills that are acquired and used amongst officials in all sports. Being a multi-sport official myself, sometimes it's just about interacting with people in the heat of the moment, and you can learn something from one game and try to apply it in another and you'll be successful and sometimes you're not. Yes. You know, and you talk officiating with other people and, you know, there's certain things that maybe you go, hey, you know what, that's not a bad thing for maybe baseball. You know, as an example, Saskatchewan baseball has a yellow card system, which yeah. is very unique to volleyball. And yeah. it was implemented by Rocky Nickel and basically and Trevor Drury. But well, Rocky's also a volleyball official. And he says, I wonder how this is going to work. And they've instituted for younger levels um, yeah. the, the card system. Now, I will say I was a rejector at first, but I was an early adopter as much as I could with the yellow card system. And I got to attest that it works in baseball here in Saskatchewan. It really helps keep players in the game, especially younger ones. And it really gives the message, hey, tempers are flaring. Let's calm it down. Let's bring it back. And in my judgment, it keeps people in the game and it keeps people playing. And by keeping people playing, it really makes people less mad at the umpire it lets people know, hey, the umpires had enough. Let's calm it down and leave them alone. Now, it's not perfect. Sometimes ejections do happen after the yellow card. But in all fairness, if you've had your warning, then there's no excuses. And lots of times, uh, young young umpires, they don't have that skill set. And the yellow card will, will help them in, in achieving goals like, like you said. Okay, let's move on now. Ron, you've been involved with the Baseball Canada a long time. We have already talked about it. What is your current role and capacity with the Baseball Canada Umpire Program at the present time? I run what's known as the Instructor Development Portfolio, and it's, it's basically uh, areas, two areas of responsibility. The first one is to develop instructors for clinics, and the second one is to uh, uh, certify people as senior course conductors, which means they can umpire at national championships. What happens, the, the, first, the first part of it is to have people instruct at clinics. And usually we have people that maybe know umpiring or are involved in umpiring, but have never been in front of a classroom. And so they, there's certain skill sets that they need to develop to make an, a clinic interesting for the participants. And we, we go through it and we, see, we teach them how to set up gym drills and those types of things, audiovisual equipment. And those, those are the kinds of things that, uh, that make people better instructors. There is no question that the program works and it's very effective. Now, Ron, what is the name of the program here in Canada to become an instructor? It's called the Caravan Program. And, you know, it's it's interesting because, I mean, you are also a multi-sport official yes. and you go to clinics and you kind of, sometimes you kind of go out of there and you go, you know what, I'd like to poke my eyeballs out. It was so boring. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'll be honest with you. Yeah. And we've had, and 
And I think this is a program, um, in fact, we've talked about it, is selling this program to other sports because instruction of clinics is is universal, that skill set, that, that ability to teach. It's a pedagogical clinic, which is pedagogical is the art of teaching. And it doesn't matter whether it's volleyball, whether it's rugby, whatever, those kinds of uh, skill sets are important for doing clinics. 100% Ron. Now, would I be right or wrong if I said the concept of the program is not necessarily to drill the rules or the positioning into an individual, but more the instructional aspect and how to interact with uh, pupils or students? Well, and now we have to have our kids coming into our program at the age of 13 or 14. They don't want to sit there and be bored. They want no. to be active. They want right. to do. And we need to we need to teach our instructors how to engage you know, the younger people. And then as they progress, how to engage more experienced umpires, because what is expected of a first year official is not what a fifth or sixth year official is expecting at a clinic. Right. And sometimes we see that in some of these communities where we have people that have, oh, I've umpired for 15, 20 years. You've taken the same lecture year over year from the same individual delivered in the same fashion. We need to be current with our instructional practices. There's there's no question about it. You know, the people that I have on the committee are very, very progressive people. I have uh, Rhonda Pauls is yes. fantastic. We uh, She's very much into rubrics and evaluation and mm-hmm. mentorship and those types of things. And Trevor, uh, Trevor Drury, who's a, who's an educator and uh, J.F. Arsenault, who's an educator in Quebec and, and Blair Haynes, who's a, who's a, an umpire and experienced clinician in, uh, in Ontario. So those are the people that, that sit on the committee. It's really interesting the names you've put out there because you've got a coast to coast contingent of people who are on the committee and providing input from their communities, no matter if it's East, West, North or South. Yes, and, and you want you've got a core curriculum that you want to cover, and then there may be little nuances in Prince Edward Island that they have to teach, or Saskatchewan they may do their types of things a little different, but that that's adapted depending on the geographical region. Well, for our friends Mike Richards and Kent Walker out in Prince Edward Island, I think the whole island is a nuance, if I'm not mistaken. <laughs> <laughs> Kent, by the way, is writing a book on yes. Uh, on umpiring, if you want to plug that. Yes, yes. Something, nine questions about mentoring and how to get to the next level. So it just shows what people who are involved in this national program trying to give back in various ways. But when you think about it, Phil, we have we have a country that's 5,000 kilometers approximately coast to coast. And the job that we do to coordinate that, I'm very proud of, of the people in our organizations, the, the provincial supervisors and, and the people on, our, on the committees and people doing work. And it's a very, very, it's a daunting task to, to try to standardize things across such a great geographical area. It's one of the few national programs in the world, like the United States, they have American Federation rules, they have college rules, they have pro rules, they, they're all over the map. Now I have to ask, Ron, all you people coordinating all this work, are you paid to do this? Not a nickel, you know, and, yeah. uh, and, I, and you know what, I had a long discussion with Corey Davis one time about this, and, and this is the one thing that I, that I said about umpiring is, when it's all said and done, I want to leave even. I want to give back. I want to give back to as much as I've taken. And the game has been absolutely fantastic to me. I've seen parts world world I never would have known. In exchange for that, I want to be the guy. I want to give back. And if you don't give back, 
You know, we have far too many umpires. All they do is they take the best assignments. They want to do this. They take this. They take this. But they never, they never contribute, whether it be locally, provincially, nationally. And that, that kind of, no offense, it, it irks me because I think if you, if you, it's just like what you're doing with this program. You're, you're not making a cent off this. Oh, no, it's costing you money, and yeah. you know that. Yes. You know, and to be honest with you, it. You're not going to get rich doing amateur athletics in Canada. And I, I tell this at a level four. If you think that you're going to get rich doing amateur athletics in Canada, you are nuts. So enjoy the experiences and, and have that kind of fun. And it's all about the fun. And I think maybe that's what makes the program special. Not that I'm advocating for not compensating people, but when you have volunteers with a passion, it eventually comes out in the outcome and the work that they produce. And those those people should be commended. I, I you know I mean, we looked at, at an honorarium system, and then you know it becomes this, it becomes that, and you kind of go, I'm not cynical, but I we also have a lot of those people now that are doing this work are in their 40s, 50s, right, and 60s. You know, yes. and we have to catch those 20 and 30 year olds. That's that's an, an area that we we have to recruit them so that they know. And as an example, like the contribution program that Saskatchewan has is fantastic because if you contribute, you go. Right. If you don't contribute, maybe you don't go. Right. And I think that's that's a a very important part of of anything, any organization. And we talk about learning every time we're out there. Contributing, I think, helps you learn. You learn the game from a different perspective. You learn how to have the discussion with another individual because there's too many times that we walk off the baseball field and high-five each other, pat each other on the back, and really aren't honest with each other. Well, that's that's one of the things that I really have difficulty with, and you're correct, is, is we sit here and, you know, after a game, yeah, great job, blah, 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 but we need to critically evaluate that game like brian hodson and i are working a game in swift current we're driving back to medicine hat we will talk about situations and we will say to him he'll say ah you know what in that second inning, i don't think you saw that pit finish real well look like you weren't really locked in on it or i'll say something about things and we have those frank honest discussions with with each other and we are you know, how many years into it, how many tournaments into it, and we still do it. Unfortunately, we just, too many guys go, oh, great game, and then they decide, well, let's go, where are we going? No, you know what? There's times when we have to do that and be very frank and very honest with each other. Well, I got to say, if there's two Olympians that are having that discussion with each other, that means that it's a continuous improvement. And I've said it before, you're only as good as your last call because that's what you're evaluated on. Well, I was doing a senior double A championship this year, and they ripped me over an infield fly call that I made. You know, I mean, those players don't care where I've been, where I'm. You know, I mean, right? They they want they want that call made at that point in that game. They don't care what your resume says. They want to know is is your was a out was a ball and strike correct and the safe and out was it correct? Was the rule applied properly? Right. And sometimes the difficult thing between bouncing back and forth between calibers and leagues is that there's different standards between X League and Y League. I think we've all, we've all been there with an infield fly situation where routine in this league is not routine in the next league. That's something also, and, and, and I'll talk a little bit about the Western Major or the Western Canada Baseball League. That's one of the things that, that I've had discussions with managers about is when you talk about being full-time they know that's the only baseball that 
I will do in a season. When they see me, they know I'm not working any other league except their league. Right. And we have a lot of umpires, and this is a this is a, a problem. It's not. It's 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 a conundrum. Is you still have to service your local baseball. If you're not servicing your local baseball, who's going to, you know, you have to do that U18 game in Yorkton. You have to do that U18 game, that Legion game in, in Lethbridge, or you don't have any baseball. So then you also, they have to be more understanding it. Then the next day, when you're out there doing a Western Canada Baseball League game, they have to understand that. And, you know, but some managers say, well, these guys are doing, you know, they're doing a U12 game or U13 game and U15 game, and then they're coming to us and the speed's too much. Well, you know, there's there's a, a balance between that. And a lot of umpires, that's them out there giving back. They're trying to give back to their local communities so that, like you said, there's baseball to umpire here tomorrow. And that's true, and, and and those are discussions that I've had with with some Western Canada Baseball League managers. Now, Ron, you mentioned something about recognition and rewards, and you don't like to be recognized for some of the work you've done. But it's 2001. You get the call from Baseball Canada. You're the Dick Willis recipient and the Umpire of the Year. What was that like, Phil? When we start umpiring, like I said, we don't think of rewards or no. anything else. You just think of, of going along. And I was the umpire that went that year to Taiwan. And uh, when it was all said and done, I he was the one that it was, the convention was in Winnipeg and it was, it was kind of special for me. And probably more about that particular uh, award was, it was also the day that Larry Nichols received the Lifetime Achievement Award. And, right. and that was, to me, was was more important than what I did. I, I Mine was a snapshot of one year. Larry's was a snapshot of an entire career or collage of an entire career i agree with you but i'll also disagree with you i think that the dick willis award is not something that's honored for the umpire of the year for this year it is a it is a career building accolade you do have to work your way up to it there's certain requirements yeah i guess for the most part it yeah it you know like it's it's for one year but you're right to to say that it's just for that year well yeah it's probably that's probably somewhat incorrect you know, it's always nice to see our, what I like most about this game too, is seeing our colleagues do well and having that opportunity to see Larry Nickel be presented with that Lifetime Achievement Award, just as much as seeing your buddy, Brian Hodgson, also get the call of the Olympics. Yes. And, and Brian, uh, Brian was inducted into the Manitoba Baseball Hall of Fame and uh, he was, you know, he received the Honor Society for Manitoba and him and I spoke at it two or three banquets together. So, yeah, I mean, it's, those are the, those are the kinds of things that you see. And, and when you see people like him who've given so much to the game, get at least some recognition, it's, it's, it feels gratifying. feels gratifying. Cause I think that we have some kind of aspect and part in that too. And it's all about the family. I like to see my family do well because it's, we, we always say there's not too many people out there looking out for the officials. There isn't there, you know, we are unto ourselves an island in, in a lot of cases. Jim Cressman said it best in the last episode. He says, we win every game. And I agree because we always leave with a game fee. Well, I, I put it this way, Phil, is is uh, umpiring is kind of like, like landing an airplane. If you if the airplane lands and the game, <laughs> fin- game finishes, it's been a success. <laughs> Fair enough. Some, some rides are bumpier than others. That is true. Some rides are bumpier than others. But one of the smooth rides, since we're talking about accolades and recognition, I just want to let the listeners know that 1987, 
Ron Suchek was the Baseball Manitoba Umpire of the Year as well. But most recently, Ron was inducted into the Manitoba Baseball Hall of Fame. Now, Ron, you mentioned that Larry Walker is in going to get inducted into the Baseball Hall of Fame, but what was it like at the local level getting the call to say, hey, Ron, we think that you've contributed to baseball in Manitoba enough that you deserve that recognition? It's, a, it's, it's definitely an honor. Um, I mean, there are people that get, get inducted into, into the Manitoba Baseball Hall of Fame. My family was there, which was which was nice, and actually my friends and a bunch of friends went down there, which was which was good. I they they thought it was a bigger deal, quite frankly, than I did. I went, oh, okay, you know, blah blah blah, you know. And kind of adding to that is, the award that I also received was the Manitoba Baseball Honor Society. I cherish that award also in in the fact that that is an award of of recognition of of work that I've done, not okay. necessarily on field. Baseball was. The on, going to the Hall of Fame was more my my on field work. This was more my off field work. Okay. So did I? Do I cherish them equally? Yes, because of how they how they are separate. One on field, one off field, and and I honored by both of them. We certainly have put a lot of off field work on, but congratulations, Ron, for those accolades and your storied career. As we've talked today, is just it's fantastic. It's one that just can't be duplicated for sure at this day. Well, thank you. Ron, you mentioned that the Baseball Canada program has some older people in their 40s, 50s, and 60s. How would you recommend that a younger person get involved with the program, whether it be at their local, provincial, or national level? The first thing is to get involved with the caravan program, which would get them in as an instructor. And then from there, sit on local committees, whether they be the umpire-in-chief of North Battleford or the umpire-in-chief of Minnedosa or, and, and get involved that way. The other thing that I, you know, I'd like to see them is, you know, just get better and try to get on provincial committees and, and, uh, or regional committees. And, and from there, that's how you get going. And, and then you might have a, an aversion for this work and or uh, a passion for this work and away we go and that's how you, you need to do that and, and like you said it, it helps the umpiring because they gain a different perspective on on things on assigning even you know right. like how many how many umpires are there that complain about assignments not knowing a thing about what goes into assignments right no there's a lot of work that goes in behind the scenes now i've heard from umpires in the past that say oh, i just i'm not good enough I don't really want to be a level four national umpire, but I really like the aspect of the administration work. Is it possible for those people to move up through the Baseball Canada program? There's people that are doing grass, grassroots level at a provincial level. Mentorship is an, is another growing area that there's umpires uh, that have a, opportunities that are limitless if you want to if you want to look at mentorship another area and i'll give you an example is british columbia they've got they've got people that are level twos doing material development yes. uh, they have a gentleman that that is just absolutely fantastic uh, doing presentations and putting together powerpoint and putting together instructional videos and so there's all kinds of opportunities if you have skill sets for those types of things by all means my recommendation is don't let your on-field perception limit your ability to give back to this fantastic program. I mean, we even have we have a guy that's not a level uh, not a level four organizing our year-end golf tournament. Those kinds of things, all right. those things, contribute to the brotherhood and contribute to us being friends as officials and as umpires. 
Oh, yes, 100%. And that's what it is. It's about the family of umpiring. I mean, that's really the basis for this show because this year we're not getting the opportunity to really congregate like we have in previous years. So it's just an opportunity to share some of those stories. But really what we miss the most is that family and camaraderie that we cherish the most. Okay, Ron, we're going to move on. We're going to move on to a favorite part of the show. It's called 10 Questions. But I promise it's not going to be about movies, music, or any shit like that, okay? Okay, here we go. <laughs> okay. Ron, you mentioned over the years that you've worked with a lot of really good umpires. Can you share with us who the best umpire you have ever seen or worked with is? Probably uh, Nelson Diaz of Cuba. Uh, I've worked seven international championships with him. He was absolutely a rock as an umpire. Just unbelievable about five foot eight five foot nine and umpired like he was six foot eight just a tremendous umpire he had such respect when he walked on the field it was it was amazing well that is 100 percent personal but nelson diaz yes nelson diaz okay ron we talk about learning from this game okay in your opinion what is the biggest mistake that you've ever made that you feel that you've learned from I'll, I'll tell you a, a hockey story better than a, than a baseball story. Fantastic. And, uh, here we go. I'm doing a triple-A midget game, and the whistle, I'm refing, and the whistle blows, and two guys get their masks, their cages together, and they, they're insulting each other's ancestry. So I says, you guys get to the face-off, dot, and don't, don't make me mad anymore. Right off the draw, the, goal, the puck goes back to the goalie. Same two guys. They put their heads together about when they start yelling at each other about a foot apart. I grabbed one guy behind the, the back of his head and the other guy behind the back of his head and clanked their heads <laughs> together and says, here, you guys want to get closer? <laughs> and I'm thinking to myself, as the, as the linesman's ready to drop the puck, I'm gonna, I wonder what I'm going to do for the rest of the season when I'm suspended. <laughs> yeah, right. And, and actually, the, the story went out, and uh, I wasn't suspended, but I learned that, you know what, sometimes you cannot let your emotions control your actions. And that's fair. Because I think that's what makes officials go from one level to the next level, is that they're able to keep those emotions in check. And handle the situations. We talk about it all the time. Situation handling. Okay, over the years, you've umpired with a lot of umpires. Who's the tightest or most superstitious umpire that you've come across? Steve Butang might be one of the one of the guys that he is so wound up before a game. He, he has a routine. <laughs> he goes outside, smokes a cigar, polishes his shoes, and he doesn't eat like... If he's doing the plate, he doesn't have a meal like four hours before game time. He is just the absolute opposite of me because, I mean, you've worked with me, and I'm, it doesn't matter if I'm doing the plate or not. I'm usually I'm pretty loose, you know. So. You've worked in a lot of ballparks. What's your favorite ballpark all time? I would probably say uh, I like Newman Outdoor Field in, in Fargo. I worked um, a, lot of, a lot of American Association games there. In terms of, of the Western Canada League, I like Swift Current. I don't know why. So that, that's probably... Swift Current's one of my favorite ballparks to work in. I like that park too. It's up on the hill, nice view, wind's always blowing, and if you catch it around the right time, the smoke's always coming in from the barbecue, so there's always a real good flavor of burger in the air. Now, you mentioned Steve Butang has a pregame meal. Do you have a favorite pregame meal? No, I, I eat pretty much anything. Uh, you know, when I was when I did work pro ball, I would, you know, I was pretty, 
you know, anal about stuff that I ate. I would, you know, maybe have a from my hockey background. I I try to have pasta. Now I I eat pretty much anything. Uh, I don't have a pregame meal. Uh, my stomach is lucky; it doesn't bother me in one way or another. And if I I can eat half an hour before game time and go do a plate, it doesn't bother me. That's iron gut suit chuck for you. Who's one of the most social umpires you've ever met? Oh, without doubt, Elmer Jerkovic. Uh, Elmer Elmer will talk to any player anytime about anything. He's uh, He is definitely one of the most social umpires that I know. You mentioned a lot of your hockey days. Where did you play university hockey? I played at the University of Winnipeg until they folded the program, and so then I didn't transfer anywhere. I just finished off my education degree, and, uh, and that was it. Uh, they no longer have a hockey program. In fact, the way it's looking right now, there isn't going to be a whole lot of hockey programs left even after COVID-19. A lot of places are cutting programs. Brandon University cut theirs. I think Lethbridge did their university cut theirs. So there is not going to be a whole lot of university hockey left. Did you have any part in them deciding to cut the program or? No, other than they uh, burnt out red lights behind me. Oh, were you a goalie? That's what they called me. That, that, was, that was a position I was listed as. I, I was the original red light rascal. Now, this is a post-show edit. We did go in and found Ron's hockey DB profile. This Ron Suchuk as a goalie, 1976 to 1977. Played for the Manitoba Junior Hockey League Dauphin Kings. 20 games played, 14 penalty minutes. 942 total minutes played, goals against were 58, had one shutout, goals against average were 3.69, with a record of 11 wins, 5 losses, 1 tie, 380 saves, and a save percentage of .868. All I gotta say is, wow, I would have stayed away from the front of the crease. 14 penalty minutes in 20 games? He was just hacking and whacking. But... You know what? Let's get back to the show. Well, where did you go down and play in Australia? Uh, I played in Melbourne. Actually, there were three or four of us from the university team wound up playing in Melbourne in the uh, in the uh, Australian league. It was uh, it was a pretty decent league. It was equivalent to senior hockey in Saskatchewan and Manitoba. And we went down there and spent the uh, spent the year there, and it was a uh, was a lot of fun. It's amazing where sports takes an individual around the world. Now, Ron, you've been to the Olympics. You said that that was your goal. Now that we're post-Olympics, what would you say your goal is as an official going forward? Well, I'll be very honest with you. Anywhere that I'm going in this game, I've already been as an official. Right. And so I uh, I will continue to umpire as long as I enjoy it, and I still do. I, I still do a full-time 60-game or 50-game Western Canada Baseball League schedule, and I truly enjoy that. I work uh, usually a month with Brian Hodson, which is fun because both him and I like to golf. And when I go to Palm Springs, I spend usually a couple of days with him and his wife, and we play golf. So um, I like to do that, uh, and I like to continue to work with the uh, instructional development portfolio. That's where my uh, goals are, are right now. That's fantastic to hear. Now, reflecting back on what you said earlier when you did Japan-Korea, you mentioned ways that they are trying to speed up the game. What would be one recommendation you would make if you could try to speed up the game? What could we refer to as the Ron Suchuk speed up the game of baseball rule? 
Well, as radical as it sounds, I'd, I'd start with a 1-1 count or play 3-2 baseball, which we play at T12, which really speeds the game up. And I don't think it's a bad idea because you're never out of the count. The other the other thing is, is they, there's a lot of rules that they can do as an example. You have two out and a runner at first base, and there's a ground ball. If you can get the double play, you start the next inning with one out. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> you know, I I just I think of all kinds of things that you, that you could do with with stuff like that. But I I think the big one is it still it still comes down to if that guy's got to throw that white thing over the plate and somebody's got to hit it and it's got to get caught and is this the best, if you have good pitching then that's that's the big thing. I couldn't agree with you more. One of the things that I love the most about the game of baseball is that there is no time limit. Sure, we like to get a hour 40 game out of the way but in all honesty I think that's what the lure of baseball draws me in is that you can be down to your last out and come back and score 15 runs and win the game and that's that's what the purists say and, and there's nothing wrong with that and you know and I you know everything that they've always tried to do is to speed up sport I mean that's why they went to rally point in, in volleyball is because they wanted to speed the game up because if, if you have a, a game that, that where it's side out in volleyball you could be there for three hours, four hours, and they don't want that. And that's why they brought in tiebreakers and tennis is they want, for some reason, I don't know what it is now, they just want people in, out, and let's go. It'll make its way back and people will say we're not here long enough or we're not making enough money, so we got to keep them in longer. I always thought that having the people in the ballpark longer would increase beer sales and <laughs> concessions, but... <laughs> now, Ron, let's talk quickly. You, you mentioned it on multiple occasions. We never really touched on it but you work the western canadian baseball league what do you think that that does for umpires here in the western part of canada the western canada baseball league is an absolutely great opportunity for umpires to do higher level baseball umpiring three um with three umpires and the other thing is is there's only there's only a few ways to get better as an umpire one is to work with better umpires and number two is to work better baseball. And that's what, if you're uh, somebody in, who's aspiring level three in Regina, if you work with better umpires who challenge, who critique, who encourage, and then you're working better baseball, that has nothing but the opportunity to get better as an umpire. Where do you see that league going post-COVID? It's going to be interesting to see that league. It's, I think it's turning very much into a have and have not league. And that's, that's shown by the fact that Yorkton and, and Melville have taken leaves of absences and they're adding places like Sylvan Lake and, and those types of places. So I'm hoping that, uh, that it continues to grow. And uh, it's, it's, a, it's a very good league. It's a very good for developmental purposes, whether you're a player, whether you're an umpire. I like the direction it's going in terms of uh, if they can get continue to get quality baseball players, and uh, I hope it continues. I do too, because I do think that it is a good opportunity for umpires here in Saskatchewan, Alberta, and potentially BC eventually to work that higher level baseball and get three umpire mechanics down, because that really helps people once they get to the national championship level, because that's the system that they work there. And you can obviously tell when you get to a national championship, individuals who work predominantly to umpires. There is a big difference in their ability. Well, that's what I've always said is, is there's provinces where they don't encourage the use of three umpire systems. And they're doing their umpires a great disservice by not 
insisting that they work three umpires in preparation for national championships. And we talked with Corey Davis a few episodes back and asked him what the best system as an umpire to work is, and he favors the three umpire system. If you can put three strong umpires out there, that that is the best system to work, and you get all the coverage for the best bang for your buck. And it's also a system where if you have three strong umpires, like you said, everything's covered. If you have a weak link in that or, or a couple of weak links, then there can be some, some serious problems. But the key is if you have guys that know the system, it is a very, very good system. Moving on, Ron, section that we like to do, it's called Local Legends. So it's hard to beat your legendary career, but the Local Legends section is really just a shout out to those local people, grassroots people, or people that might have, one, helped you along the way or are really helping the growth and development of baseball at various levels. Who would you have or who would you like to name as your local legend? Oh, boy. Like I said, I have so many people that have helped me along the way. Um, obviously, Merle Clinic, who got me started in umpiring, my old math teacher, was is the first. And then as I got going, Larry Nichols, Larry Nichols and I are, are best of friends and we worked a number of national and international championships together and of course brian hodson who's uh, who's a good friend of mine i've worked 30 some years with him when i was first started out glenn johnson and i were we did a lot of baseball together and we kind of grew up through the system or, or went through the system so those are those are obviously some people now i have another guy that i haven't spent enough time talking about is is Rocky Nickel. And Rocky, when you talk about caravans, Rocky and I have probably done 12 or 15 caravans together. He is one of the most innovative thinkers I know. He thought we should have had a national supervision clinic 20 years ago. And now that's that's kind of what we do in our in our instructor development. So Rocky is, is one guy also that I really, really have a lot of respect for. Uh, just, a, just a great, great human being. And we, like I said, we haven't, I haven't spent enough time, you know, thanking him. And obviously, Corey Davis, I, Corey and I go back a long way. And there were times I was kind of ready to quit the program. And he convinced me to come back and supervise with him. And then he did a caravan. And every one or two years, we just get together. And we did the All-Star game in, in last year in, at the Wick Bowl. And and he's just, you know, just one of one of my my great friends. And then uh, now also Andrew Higgins, you know, he does a does a lot of work with uh, with me and uh, you know in the in the in the Wick Bowl. And and we, I used to be on his high performance committee and before I took over the instructor development portfolio. And he's just a just a great great individual. I mean, and I. I'd be remiss and, you know, the Trevor Drury's of the world. And, and then two other fantastic people are, are Ron DePaul's and, and Steve Butang. They're, they're great friends of mine, but, you know, forget about umpiring. They're just, you know, great classy people. And there's, there's so many of those people. I mean, the, the Don Gilberts and those kind of people. Just the, the, I, could, I could sit here for the next hour and name people that, that were just so instrumental in, in making the game so much fun for me. So I'd like to thank each and every one of them. Well, Ron, we'd like to thank you for your devotion to the game. One thing, though, is that the day that you do decide to maybe step back, let's call it a retirement. Let's not call it quitting, because I think a gentleman like you who's been around that long deserves a retirement. Like I said, I, 
when I will hopefully know when it's time. Uh, right now, I'm just not ready to quit. I, I still, I'm still enjoying the game, and I, I, I still think I get a lot more right than I get wrong. And as long as that continues, uh, that's it. I, I stepped away from hockey this year because I said that I've had enough of, of AAA midget hockey. It's just it's time for me to move on, and I hope I have that same recognition when it's time for, for me to move on from baseball. Well, Ron, it's hard to beat all the people that we meet in this fantastic game and the people that get us to where we are. So thank you for sharing with us your local legends. Now that local legends is complete, that essentially wraps up this episode of The Leading Edge. I would like to thank you for giving us the time and the opportunity to have you on the show and sharing with us your experiences and stories from over the years. Now, before you go, we simply like to allow the guest the opportunity to share a few final words of wisdom. So, Ron, what are your words of wisdom? Before we go, I'd like to thank you for the opportunity of, of being on, on your program. My pleasure. Um, the one thing that, that's, like I said, is very near and dear to my heart is, is development of umpires. And I, I would leave umpires with, with this one bit of advice is I'm a little bit old school in that, you know, I shave my head before every game and I shave before <laughs> every game because that's how I was brought up. But the other thing that I like to say to, um, to umpires is, there's, there's some things they need to do to, to improve. And one is stand closer to a razor, which means, you know, nothing wrong with, with shaving once in a while or trimming the beard or, you know, getting right. a haircut. The other one is sit further from the dinner table, which means that, <laughs> you know what, uh, the way baseball and officiating is going, they want guys that are in shape, especially if you yes. want to move up the rung. They, they, want, they want guys that are sh in shape. I mean, I went through that where I was very heavy and I've done a, a cognizant, I've been very cognizant of that and trying to lose some weight. And the other thing, the third one is stick your nose further in a rule book and, and a manual. And, and those things is, are, are very important. Uh, you know, when, when I umpire with guys and I'll say, what have you read the three man manual? And they'll say, oh, yeah. And I said, well, how many pages are in it? And they'll say, Oh, a hundred and a hundred. And I'll say, no, there's, oh, there's 238. But yeah. so obviously you haven't stuck your nose in a manual. And those, those things are, are words of advice that I give umpires. So uh, that's my final word of advice. Life, life lessons by Ronnie. And that concludes this episode of The Leading Edge, where we talk with umpires about umpiring and look to cover topics on both sides of the plate. Join us on our next episode where we bring on 1991 national youth team catcher and international champion, a proud member of the Baseball Canada National Umpire Program, and a guy who once stole Alan Jackson's hat, Blaze LaVey. Now, before you go, we would like to leave you with this. There's a common rule myth that people believe that the hands are part of the bat. But my question is, is the bat part of the hands? Take care, everybody, and stay safe. <laughs>